Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So friends, we are wrapping up our series that we have been doing, uh, talking about everybody's most favorite, joking, but most uncomfortable topic of death. We've talked about funeral planning and living wills and preparing for death. But also we've talked about, we spent some time talking about what to do when you don't have time to prepare for death, when death comes suddenly and tragically, um, when death comes through someone taking their own life. Um, so as we conclude this episode, Steve, where are we going to finish out with? Well, we thought this would be a place for us to address a couple of different uh, topics that emerge out of places we've gone and sort of a place for a catch-all of yeah, what are some maybe rarer uh, but really difficult circumstances? We, we've we probably been noting as we've gone through this series, starting from the most generic, death in general is uncomfortable, but at some point life teaches us, okay, this is part of the rhythm of things. It's harder still when uh, there's uh, difficult or tragic or unexpected circumstances, maybe more uncomfortable even further when um, you're dealing with situations of self-harm or suicide. And so we're going to be looking in, in a similar direction to last time. So just like we began last time with sort of a, hey, uh, not just there be dragons, but like a content warning here, a conversation here is going to uh, have some conversation about um not only suicide, but also questions of where medicine is involved in uh, hastening someone's death uh, or or whether that's uh, full out uh, physician assisted suicide or circumstances where medical treatments uh bring death closer, even if that's not the primary uh, intent or, or is a side effect or something like that. So we thought first it would be a place to, uh, to start to talk about um, wh- how, do, how do we think about questions of uh, what, what broadly could be physician-assisted suicide or times where someone is in deep pain, uh, physical pain, perhaps even mental pain or things like that, but deep pain and uh, are looking for what will end that pain or end that suffering. Um, how, how do we even begin to approach that that conversation? I think first we would probably start with the legality of it, mm-hmm. um, because uh, doctor assisted suicide is not legal everywhere in the world and not everywhere in the U.S. So, like different states are going to have different policies, and different countries are going to have different policies. Um, so like in Pennsylvania, which is where the three of us are, it's not actually legal, mm-hmm. right? Like, right? Yeah, it's not legal where we are, but you could conceivably drive to a state where it is legal. Right. Maybe, and, and I'm so glad that you name here at the beginning that like, this is one of those topics that um, while there are going to be differences of perspective and opinion on top of that, more than just this is my personal preference, there are there are legal issues that are uh, involved a, a mm-hmm. part of this as well. Um, but we should probably also say that while uh, not every state uh, will will legalize or will recognize or, or approve of a physician assisted suicide. There are lots of cases where medicine will recommend uh, treatment that isn't intended to take someone's life, but may hasten death 
in the pursuit of relieving pain. And there you might be in a category that's not really physician-assisted suicide, uh, but also where the goal of healthcare has changed from prolonging somebody's life to making somebody comfortable. So often, and that's something that would be true in any state in the United States and probably any country in the world, uh, where sometimes it's called comfort care, sometimes it's called palliative care, sometimes it's accompanied by hospice as a set of protocols. And there you might be dealing with somebody who is an advanced disease of whatever sort it is, and they might be in very, very severe pain. And um, the question is whether uh, without additional pain medication or other kinds of things, they will just linger on, you know, continuing to suffer a great deal or whether additional pain medication might be given, even if that runs the risk that it might also slow other body functions and hasten death. And that's that's uh, a really difficult situation because that's something that people may be more likely to encounter in their life, even if you uh, are never dealing with directly physician-assisted suicide that is uh, what what you classically think of as physician-assisted suicide. Right. And and I think that a huge theme of this whole series has been communication. Yeah. That, you know, you should be talking everything through with as many people as possible so that everybody's on the same page and there aren't any, like, confusion or hurt feelings. Um but I think that in these situations now, when we're transitioning into comfort care, whatever that is called mm-hmm. um, for where you are, um, it's important to keep communicating, but also to keep in mind that healthcare isn't done by committee. Mm-hmm. Um, like mm-hmm. decisions are made by medical professionals and they are sometimes done by committee. Like they talk to each other. Right. Um, and family gets to also have some input but not everyone's opinion in the family needs to have their opinion like known and done. Right. Right. Like that's why we have those medical power of attorneys so that it isn't just like, okay, we're now going to have a committee meeting in this patient's room and the whole family is going to have a vote. And then we're going to decide what way we're going to go. No, that's not how health good healthcare should happen. Right. Um, And I say that in particular because I feel like when we start moving into needing comfort care, sometimes that's a difficult decision for families to come to terms with. And not everyone's going to be ready to say, I'm ready to give up the fight because that means that um, great aunt Edna gets to be pain-free. Like I still want great aunt Edna to keep fighting um, and to get better and to live a, you know, many, many, many more years. Um, When in actuality, that might not be where great aunt Edna actually is, or it might not be feasible anymore, or it just might be too painful. Um, So, you know, keep communicating, but that doesn't mean that everyone gets to have a vote. Yeah. I, I'm glad you raise it that way. And I think this is this is maybe a helpful place for us to say sometimes um, we are so pervaded, I think, in our whole culture, and especially in a lot of American medical culture, we're thinking the goal of medicine is always uh, to, it's it's framed like a fight, like it's a battle, like it's, it's how do we fight death and how do you prolong life and the goal of every doctor, how do you make everybody live? And I, I get that because in, in most of the time, yeah, that's that's the point to make people better, um, but also to discover or to to come around to a point of there, there are points in life where the body is done fighting and we sometimes emotionally have a hard time catching up to where our bodies are at or where the bodies of our loved ones are at. And it is a transition. It's a change of 
goal when the medical team will say we are at a point where all the treatments we have tried are no longer helping this person we are now causing more pain or prolonging suffering we're prolonging death rather than you know it's not about taking their life it's we're, we're we'd be dragging out death for them um and for family sometimes that's the hardest thing because when you hear a conversation move toward we think we need to move to a comfort care protocol or to palliative care or something even just hearing the word a hospice for some people they get upset because it can sound like well then you're giving up and you were saying that that person isn't worth fighting for no it's we we've done the things that we know how to do and there are limits to human medicine and technology and limits to what our bodies can do and what they can bear and that's a so sometimes when when you're in that place of I'm upset about the situation, you'll characterize hospice care or comfort care or palliative care as physician-assisted suicide. So you're killing them? No, that's not what's happening here. Um, but that's really hard for folks sometimes to wrap their minds around that uh, changing the protocol is like recognizing this is what the goal is right now. And we this is what we thought it was. And now we're in a place where here's what the goal needs to be right now. It's, it's probably um, also just an uncomfortable thing for us as people of faith to talk about, because in so many contexts, we are supposed to be on the side of preserving and protecting and helping and healing the sick, right? So there are mm -hmm. lots of stories where Jesus heals the person who is sick or even raises the dead person. And sometimes it can feel like, oh, well, then the perspective of faith is even when all the doctors have given up, you should always do everything heroic and keep the person on machines and keep them on just in case there's a fighting chance. And it's hard to say, Okay, as a person of faith, that doesn't mean always I'm rooting for a miraculous resurrection or resuscitation or something like that. And so there will be times when the voice of faith is to say it's time to let go, not to no, you you must be doubting that God can. It's not that we're doubting God can. It's a question of whether God will in this circumstance, you know, that and that's a that's a tough thing for us to wrap our minds and hearts around. Those are some of my hardest prayers, especially like pastoral prayers on Sunday mornings when somebody lifts up a person who is in the process of actively dying. Like how, how do you pray for them? Right. Whether you're in the hospital room with them or you're in front of an entire congregation and, and praying for that person, along with all the other concerns that have been brought up on Sunday morning. Right. You know, what do you say? Because we do have that hope of healing and wholeness, but sometimes that has to come through death. Yeah. And I think that that's how I usually approach it is I ask, usually ask for in my prayers for healing. And I let that be super open ended of what does this look like? Like mm -hmm. God mm -hmm. knows best. Yeah. God knows what this healing looks like for this person. Um, Cause I had a parishioner not too long ago who I thought for sure was going to die. Like, I thought I was going to the hospital to hold his wife's hand as she said goodbye. Like that's, that's why I was going. Um, I was fully prepared to do the service of anointing, which is pretty similar to the Catholic last rites, but it's not last rites. Like that's <laughs> yeah. but it's similar. Um, mm -hmm. And like, I thought that's what I was doing. And I arrived and in the time that it took me to drive from my office to the hospital, he snapped out of it and like basically woke up and was not fine yet. But, you know, that, that the prayer that was in my head during my drive of healing, I thought I was asking for the healing power of death. 
And it turns out to be not that Mm -hmm. because God Mm -hmm. is the one who knows what type of healing this man needed. Yeah. I find that it's in circumstances like, like these that we're talking about that um, my theology of prayer gets run through this really important filter (laughs) of humility, you know, that like, instead of, ever thinking that God is like a genie or a vending machine and I decide what God should do. And I just, you know, got to get the words right or punch in the right code key. And then I get my M&Ms that like, nope, this is us going, God, here's what we think as we read the situation and we might be way off. So I'm, I'm even in those moments when I'm really confident about here's what I think needs to happen, not only to have peace and assurance that God reserves the right to go, well, you sure seem determined that this is what you want, but that's a terrible thing. So no. And other times where all I bring to God is, I don't even know. Here's the situation. You already know it, God. It's not like I need to even just bring this to your attention, but we don't even know know what to ask. Be in the midst of this situation, God. Um, And and especially in moments like this, to allow that to to... That to be okay in our prayer life, that if we find ourselves, whether us as pastors or uh, individuals with family members are like, well, what are we going to ask for? What do we even say? It's just almost a, to lift up the situation, say, God, be in the midst of this and help us. Um, and you know what that needs. You you know what we need better than we do. So, you know, be at work here and help us to see that you are at work. So we don't feel mm-hmm. like we're fumbling through this alone. Um, but yeah, that, that this, this is such a difficult place for our our faith tradition and our our theology to make sense of where is God here and to change perspective from God's presence would look like a healing to God's presence might but it might not and that there's also that the 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 catch all we keep coming back to is God's sort of uh, ace in the hole in resurrection and new creation that if the healing doesn't happen on this side of glory there's this promise of resurrection when all things are made new Um, it's probably also worth saying, although maybe we don't want to spin this out in too, too much time, that there are people of faith who land in different places on the the sharper question of whether it is permissible to seek medical help and ending your own life if you are in great, in those places that are more clearly physician-assisted suicide. I mean, there are, there are, as we mentioned, states where that's legal, and there are people of no faith and people of deep religious faith who would be comfortable if your loved one is in deep, severe pain and felt like mm-hmm. there's no point in me continuing in this and there's nothing else anybody else can do that allows that person to feel like they're choosing to end their life with dignity rather than um, you know, prolonging death or or increased suffering or something like that. And I'm not sure that anything we say is going to be able to persuade anybody where they're at on a subject like that, just to say, that's a tough one. Because there's, again, we don't have like, here's the Bible verse to go to on, because that this is not a reality in uh, much of the, the ancient biblical world. And maybe the closest you'll find is Saul falling on his sword. <laughs> um, but like, that that's, that's more to deal with shame rather than uh, to deal with uh, uh, strong pain or something. It's so interesting because like, it is such a difficult conversation and um, I kind of keep just coming back to the thought of, you know, it, it's it's our own desire to control the situation that mm. often, you know, is part of that conversation, right? Like, I want to be able to make this choice for myself. I want to be able to live my life the way that I want to live it and die the way that I would like to die. Um, and uh, so so it's one of those like 
super odd ethical questions out there of is this okay that we would be able to have this type of control over our own death um you know it's an interesting religious ethical question as well as an interesting medical ethical Mm -hmm. question Mm -hmm. um you know there were a couple of times on internship where i got to be in the room during a medical ethics panel or like discussion about hey here is this situation that is happening in our county here is the medical question here is what the doctor wants to do this is what the family wants to do is this ethically and morally right for us to do and you know i we were invited my supervisor and i to be part of that discussion as a religious voice yeah and um it was difficult. Like that, that ethical question had nothing to do with um, doctor assisted suicide, but it was still just one of those, like, I'm not sure that there's a right answer. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I guess it also opens up uh, again, without this being nothing but cans of worms here, but um, suppose you're um, Mahatma Gandhi going on a hunger strike for the sake of trying to liberate India from British colonial rule. That's something that could end up in your own death, and you are doing it not because you're in a state of uh, a state of deep mental despair, but with this thought of I'm willing to let this take my own life if it calls attention to, and I don't know that anybody would say what he was doing was illegal. I mean, like, no, that was intended to be a certainly political statement and a protest, but like, there's a moment where I guess I I would imagine a lot of people would say it's his life. He's trying to use it to make a statement to help liberate his people. Is, is he allowed to do that? And if, if you're willing to grant that, then there becomes the question, are you only allowed to do things that could cause self-harm when there's a political cause you believe in? Or are you allowed to also do it if you are in unending, unterminal pain? Like it, at, at that point, things get real muddy real fast if we start to make this in rules. And until you are faced with somebody you deeply love who is in unbearable, excruciating pain, and not just sort of like the the depression and pain of being in a, in a mental state of feeling like they're alone, but like they're in physical pain and nothing that anybody can do can, can relieve that. It's really hard to, to, to how, how our, how our abstract rules and hypotheticals uh, sort of crumble in the face of people who are, I'm in such deep pain. The thing I want is just to be out of that pain. Um, that's, that's really hard. Maybe since we're gluttons for punishment, this would be a place then to say there's, there's a, another, almost at the opposite end of the spectrum kind of category that is probably worth us having some conversation about. Um, and in some ways feels like the opposite of uh, end of life circumstances where you were asking how much an active role you can have in hastening someone's death um, is the opposite is when, what, how do we think about, how do we talk about when life ends unexpectedly in infancy or even in the womb in utero or their stillbirth or miscarriage? And how do we think about that or talk about that as, as people of faith? So I think this is probably a good place to say, Hey, trigger warning. If this is a conversation that you don't want to overhear right now or participate in um if that's not where you are right now that's okay i would say go Mm -hmm. ahead and end our episode now here for you um catch us next week we'll have a completely different topic um going on so um you know this this is an okay place Mm -hmm. to leave the conversation if this if you don't want to talk about you know stillbirth infant death miscarriage um you know that's fine go ahead and 
close out now. All right, so now that, um, so if you are still with us, yeah, let's talk about this because I think that this is a subject that is often not talked enough about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you're not, if, if you're in a place to talk about it, you should talk about it. Yeah. Um, and again, not everybody is in a place where they can talk about it, but it's um, when I was uh, going through trying to conceive and pregnancy and childbirth and they i was told by my obgyn the number of women who have experienced um miscarriage like the percentage i was shocked like it's much higher than i think most people realize because we don't talk about it um especially the miscarriage that happens so early in pregnancy um you know before you you start announcing it before you start showing um you know that that part of pregnancy is so fragile that it's really easy to have a miscarriage and then we don't talk about it and so you might not know until you've gone through your own miscarriage and if you've been vocal about it to have other people then to come up to you and say that's me too. I've also experienced this loss. Yeah. But otherwise then people don't talk about it. Right. Right. And in ways that are different from other experiences of death, um, the loss of a pregnancy uh, or the loss of a, a child in infancy feels like part of what is being grieved is a future that is unrealized mm-hmm. and it hurts differently than the hurt of having loved and known somebody for decades and they lived a good full life. Part of what you're missing there is all the times you did get to spend together and you know very concretely, I remember this with them and this with them and this with them. And in miscarriage, it's almost like the opposite of I'm missing the things I didn't get to experience but would have in the the future you were starting to envision. Sometimes in households, it's, you know, we'd already made up a nursery and we picked out names and we started getting clothes and things like that. And that can be so jarring because what what we're grieving is the the life that didn't get to be lived um, as well as all the things you envision getting to happen that don't happen. And part of what is so difficult there is the lack of utter control in circumstances like that. You know, if, mm-hmm. if part of, if part of what makes us uncomfortable in our earlier conversation about, uh, physician assisted suicide or palliative care is that we feel like, oh, are we exerting too much control in taking or ending or hastening somebody's death? Um, here you're in circumstances where, most of the time there's nobody to blame, right? I mean, like, and we talked before in our episode about uh, tragic, sudden, unexpected, or violent deaths, you know, we we latch onto, we look for someone we can blame, the driver of the car who caused the car accident, or the person who was drunk behind the wheel, or the violent shooter, or the prevalence of assault weapons, or, you know, whatever you want to name as the villain. And in circumstances like this, uh, there's often nobody to be mad at and then we don't know what to do with the mad. It just becomes this deep, deep despair, this deep sadness, or it can be internalized into the, the parents, the expecting parents and family of, did we do something wrong? Which partly because of that, and partly just because this is such a difficult loss. Um, You know, I, I, I keep going back to communication for this, um, for this whole series 
Um, I think it's a good idea to seek out a grief counselor or a therapist who specializes in this kind of loss mm -hmm. to have somebody to talk to yeah. um, that that's been trained to talk about this subject in ways that, you know, your best friend or your sister or your mother or friends or even your partner haven't been trained in. And I think it is still good to talk to them about your loss and your feelings and what you're going through. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, right. I think you should keep talking to them as well. Um, but I also think that a trained grief counselor or therapist is super valuable in this situation. Like, because they won't be burdened with that, um, with the awful thing. Like, you, you know, when, when you're faced with a friend who's going through this situation, you know, people are tend to try to say things that will be comforting that end up not being comforting. And we've right. talked about right. this briefly in other episodes. Um, but like your train, a trained grief counselor isn't going to say things to try to make you feel better. They're going to try to walk you through the grief. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that helpfully marks out the difference in role of your circle of family and friends versus a, th a therapist or some other kind of trained grief counselor. And this might sound weird and it might sound callous, but it seems to me an important difference is family and friends can't help but want to help fix and relieve pain. That, and then good. That's a good thing. You want people who are there to help take. Mm -hmm. But part of what a grief counselor and therapist is trained to be able to do is to know there are limits to what anybody can do. It's more like, how are we going to help equip you for dealing with a pain that nobody can wish away with a magic wand or um, a lunch out or a get well card or something like that? But more, how do we talk about and deal and face the pain of this? Um, and it's because in part, because those trained professionals have at least some skill in being okay with my job is not to fix. I can't fix my job is to help this person discover the tools we're dealing with what they've got. Um, as well as hopefully they will know not to delve into those cliches or the things that are well meant and well intentioned, but often do not offer real comfort or, or help or, or skills for dealing with things. I, I appreciate, too, what you said in terms of communication a little bit ago, Sarah, about how when you find the courage to talk about what you've gone through in circumstances of miscarriage or stillbirth or infant death, how other people often will emerge and say, that's my story to that. And sometimes no, nobody, no, if nobody's going to talk about it first until they go through it, nobody knows how many potential voices of empathy and support they might have. And so mm -hmm. as people are able and comfortable to talk about it uh, so that it opens the door for other people who might need to talk about it, that, that becomes a real gift then too. Um, in some ways that reminds me of the language of uh, Henry Nouwen's wounded healer, right? That image of sometimes the exact way that you're able to offer healing to somebody else is by being able to be vulnerable about the places you have struggled or uh, gone through hurt or pain as well. And that's what allows somebody else to say, that's what I'm going through. And I thought I was the only one, or I didn't think anybody else would understand what I was going through. And nobody's going to be brave enough to say that until somebody else makes it safe for them to be brave. And I think I've not experienced this. Um, I have friends who have, I've not had a lot of conversation with them because I've never been in a place that I could experience this. But I think ritual is really important in the midst of infants and, and stillborn and miscarriages. Um, Again, we, we don't talk about it often. We, we rarely see funerals, 
for a stillborn or, you know, for small children, because it's, it's just so tragic. It's so hard to go through. But, but I think allowing a family to have that ritual in whatever form that might take, because sometimes, in a, especially in a miscarriage, there's not really, to be a little graphic, there's not a body to bury. But to have some sort of service to mark that loss, I think, can be very helpful to those who have gone through that. On top of seeing the counselor and talking with mm-hmm. others who have been through this mm-hmm. as well. It's almost like when when there can be that kind of ritual moment, uh, it's like acknowledging that the loss is of a real person, you know, that like, because we have funerals for people who lived 80 years, we have funerals for people who have lived five years, God forbid, but, and it's, it's uncomfortable then in this Mm -hmm. moment, how do I deal with that grief as well? And part of what, sometimes part of what people need to, to be able to express in that moment is that what they're feeling is a real loss uh, when, again, callous and and maybe maybe people who've never lived through it will say well how can you miss you you didn't even know that but you know how how can you miss them they they weren't even born and like again until you've been there that's understandable how you might think that but part of then what somebody who's going through that grief might need is the ability to honor no what i'm grieving is a real loss and it's different than i knew them for 80 years or Mm -hmm. i met them and talked to them but it's a real loss and being able to name that and honor that is sometimes exactly what people need even as painful as that is That may also raise a question from a ritual perspective or from a theological perspective, too, um, about how how do we, not just as people of faith, not just as general human beings, but as uh, pastors, how do we enter into moments like this, um, especially when people ask theological questions? Where Where is my baby? Where is my child? Uh, what happens to uh, my baby who either the, the pregnancy ended in miscarriage or an in infant death? How, how do you approach those conversations? Have you had to deal with those situations before? Thankfully, I have not in my ministry. I hope to never have to, nor would I ever wish that upon anyone. Uh, but... I have had it posed as a hypothetical mm-hmm. to me before. And, you know, my answers are always that this child was loved by God, loved by you, that they are with God now. Um, they, if they're in the right place, this child almost has an advantage over everybody else that they never saw the suffering of the world. Mm-hmm. And and then that, that's a very contextual, you know, if they're in the right place to hear that. Right. Um, that's not yeah. a pat answer for everybody. But, um, you know, just to reassure them that, yes, this child did not get to see the world or, or live long in the world, but this, this child is loved by God, regardless. And that they are waiting for them on the other side of eternity. This is one of those places, I think, where um, it, it, I'll, I'll just own, here's my own set of convictions on this. Uh, sometimes I think in the history of Christianity, we have gotten ourselves, again, so mechanistic in our understanding of how 
God saves people, that we reduce it to, unless this ritual got done in the right way, mm -hmm. God's hands are tied. And like we talked about this with uh, the way the medieval church has dealt with things like suicide and that it was because you aren't able to go confess your sin after you've taken your life. Therefore, you are doomed forever because you couldn't go through the ritual of asking for forgiveness to go into the priest or get in the sacrament. Um and that similarly, there have been times in Christian history where we've been so mechanistically wedded to, you have to have the ritual of baptism happen because the promises, whoever believed and baptized will be saved. We want to fill in the blank of, and therefore, anybody who did not have things happen in the usual standard way of believing in Jesus and being baptized, that's it, they're doomed. And to me, that sounds like such a small God who is confined to mm -hmm. live within a set of rules or a church constitution. Um, Not to mention the fact that Nobody in the first two thirds of the Bible is baptized. <laughs> Old, young, none of them. Um, and I don't want to turn uh, the notion of the New Testament into. Um, and now there's a new set of rules, and it's just there are different rules. But God is just, you know, God is petty and vindictive, and oh, you know, God is a bean counter rather than that. In no point in the Bible do you get the sense that God's like, I'd really like to help, but sorry, there's these rules. Um, if anything. The picture I see, the more and more I read the scripture, is a God who, when confronted with the rules, will go, I know what the rules say. I love you anyway. Um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, left and right. And and that's uh, Hebrew scriptures as well as uh, the New Testament. Um, so for me, it, there's there's a solid theological grounding, not just wishful thinking about that. Um, even if someone wasn't baptized, does God's love still embrace and hold them? And are they, yeah, I, I, I don't have, I don't feel like I have to cross my fingers or hope we don't talk about that or don't, don't, don't push too hard on that. Um, but it feels like there have been centuries where the Christian church's teaching on that had been so wedded to, did you have the water ritual happen to you or did you mm -hmm. accept Jesus into your heart, right? Or something like that, that we end up making God feels like God's hands are tied. I mean, there are adults that come to know Jesus later in life who, for whatever reason, don't get baptized. Right. And we don't seem to have an issue with them making it into heaven. So why does, why would God say that an infant right. not get to go into heaven when they didn't have a choice in the matter? Right, right, right. To me, this is a place where I'm a lot more comfortable putting all the weight on, on, God's both ability and willingness to be gracious uh, and not on are there yes. loopholes to the rules or things like that, you know, and um, uh, to me, that also helps to avoid what I think is sometimes intended as a theological solution to situations like this that just causes other wrinkles in the rug further down the road. Sometimes in Christian circles, you'll hear people say, well, there's an age at which if you die before then, you're in automatically. And then once you get past that age, then you're on your own. Um, and sometimes that's called an age of accountability, which, which is a theological answer to the question of what about babies who die or something like that and aren't baptized. But to me, again, that like, again, it, it seems to have its weaknesses. It assumes that there's a set of rules that God has to follow. And that if, if, uh, yet, and cause then there's still the, well, what if you were just one day past the age of accountability or what? And like, there's all, all sorts mm -hmm. of ways that doesn't solve the problems you think it does. It just punts them down the field. Um, but to be able to say, at no point is God ever hamstrung in the Bible saying, I really wanted to help save this person, but I just couldn't, them's the rules. Um, and if that's who God is, then yeah, that's who God is in real life with real instances where infants die or miscarriages happen. We have talked a lot in this series about the importance of communication at all points along the way here, and we've said it again today. 
Um, and maybe one of the things that's difficult about these kind of circumstances is um, these are the kinds of things that nobody wants to talk about until they are forced to when they live through them. And other things we've talked about in this series, there are relatively safe ways to talk about and put on paper. Here's my wishes for my hymns for my funeral, or here's you know, my wishes for medical decisions. Maybe hard, but it's hard. At least we have we have good reasons to put it on paper mm-hmm. in advance. Um, talking about these circumstances, you almost have to create times where people are comfortable sharing and where it's okay for people to to voice their experience or their fears. Um, and in church life, that can be really hard because that's hard to make small talk over. You know, we can do fellowship with a covered dish dinner or a potluck dinner and talk about the weather or the football or something like that. But it's hard to say now we're going to invite people to have an uncomfortable conversation about um, stillbirth or about uh, infant death or things like that. How do you encourage people to have this conversation or to talk with people? What, what does it look like for you? How do you create those kind of spaces? You know, I've seen a lot of different grief support groups in churches, mm-hmm. um, just general grief. Like, you know, we started off with Aunt Edna, Grandma mm-hmm. Sue, whatever. Um, grief support groups for those who are survivors of suicide um grief support for those who have lost somebody to violent death i don't see a whole lot of grief support groups for miscarriages and infant death mm-hmm. and may- maybe just because i'm not married i don't have children maybe i just I, they've been out there and i've not noticed because that's not my world um but I'm wondering if there there isn't a really good valid reason to have that. Not maybe not in every church, but mm-hmm. at least available in every community. I think that I've primarily seen those types of grief support systems online. Mm-hmm. Mm. That um and I don't know if that's just the difference of um you know, the generation that's going through those events now are millennials and gen z who are very comfortable online and in some ways are more comfortable online than in person um so yeah primarily i've seen those types of grief support groups online and that may solve a problem that would be raised by your concern erica about in a local community that might be a pretty small number of people in any given moment going through this and you know again mm-hmm. one would hope that there's not a huge number of people going through this kind of particularly uniquely terrible pain uh at a given time um and with that in mind it might be a, either a really large geographic area you'd be drawing from for people to come to get together face to face or if you can do this online then you might be connecting with people who you wouldn't be able to drive to visit with them or have that conversation mm-hmm. but you can get to that place of sharing um and have a a, a critical mass of people there for i guess i feel like in the biggest picture uh in our regular week in and week out rhythms as worship leaders as people who are involved in public worship creating space where we can name 
both the joys and the sorrows in people's lives, whether it takes the form of prayer requests or the time of sharing that people can offer. Here's what's going on in my life or whatever. But when we create moments for that in public ways that then we're not afraid to talk about and we know that we'll be supported and honored, but also those small moments, whether it's the Bible study group or the women's circle or the men's brag, but places where people can build relationships so that then when life is throwing you something deeply troublesome or painful or, or, strikes you with grief you you've got a network of people that you can go to in some ways that may be one of the gifts we can offer as leaders in communities is helping helping just to foster good connections to begin with so that when what's on our mind is dealing with grief we can talk about it any other final thoughts you would offer as we close this series about death and dying and um before we turn to a new series next week in lent i think that just that God loves you and God doesn't want you or your family to suffer. And mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of suffering and pain and death, uh, especially by those who are left behind to grieve. But even in your grief, God is still walking with you and still loves you even in those dark days. Yeah. And communicate with people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, those seems like good places to land. So take those with you, and uh, we invite you to join us with a brand new series starting next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye. Bye.